Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental, an epistolary ecclesiarchy, the letters of Gregory and Basil. Two facts have loomed large in Gregory's biography his love of literature and writing, and his tortured friendship with Basil the Great. Today, those two facts are going to collide as we look at how Basil and Gregory's relationship played out through examining uh, the main documents we have on the matter, which are the letters that they wrote to each other over the course of their lives. The only other document we have is the long autobiographical poem that Gregory writes at the end of his life, but that, of course, is not quite as objective as the back-and-forth exchange of letters that we have. In this case, both people get a say in what the relationship is like. So we're going to look at that today as a way of getting to understand just what was going on in this tortured, profound, and deeply consequential friendship. I also want to give you a bit of a taste for how Gregory and Basil are composing their letters to each other, partly, of course, because it provides that window into their relationships, but also because it's a fascinating look into how well-educated aristocratic men of ancient Rome communicated with one another. And so as we look at these letters, you need to remember that during this time period, every single letter is a public document. Why? Well, for starters, because ancient Rome didn't have a postal system. There was no uniform empire-wide way to get a letter from sender to recipient. So how did you do it? Well, usually by sending it along with a friend who was headed to the same town that you wanted your letter to go to. Or, failing that, give it to a friend who's at least going in the same general direction as your town. Then, at the next stop, they pass the letter off to somebody else who was going to your town, or in the same general direction, etc., etc., and the letter gets passed off from one person to the next until finally it reaches its recipient. Now, in the case of churches... They were often regularly exchanging people between them, so the letter system worked reasonably well. You just gave them the mail when they went on their way. But of course, your acquaintances were under no obligation to keep the contents of your letters secret. Humans being the nosy creatures they are, usually your words were not just for you alone. And if you were a bishop sending letters to your important friends you can pretty much guarantee that everybody your messenger talks to is going to hear about what you've written. They might even read it in church at every parish along the way so that everybody knows what's going on. All of which is to say that we cannot assume that anything we read between Basil and Gregory is purely private correspondence. Basil and Gregory both knew they were writing not just for each other, but for the audience of readers who would inevitably overhear every word, and this only becomes more so once Basil becomes a bishop. This blend of public and private dynamics is part of what makes their letters so difficult to interpret, and also so fascinating and revealing at the same time. First, let's start out with a letter of Gregory's, written from the time period when Basil was starting a monastic community in Pontus. This is one of the more private letters, since neither of them hold important offices yet, and there are very few people who would have cared what they wrote. Basil is just a priest trying out monastic life. Gregory is just a dude living on his dad's farm and writing a lot. 
Now Basil has invited Gregory to join him on his monastic retreat. Gregory replies as follows, and I quote, To Basil, Go ahead, mock and disparage my region. Whether you're playing around or being serious doesn't matter. Simply let yourself smile, take advantage of our education, and enjoy our friendship. Everything that comes from you pleases me, whatever it may be, however it may be. It seems to me that you're scoffing at these regions not merely to scoff, but, if I catch your drift, to draw me to yourself, like those who dam up streams to draw them in a different direction. Your words are always like this to me. For my part, I'll admire your Pontus and Pontic Burrow as an abode fit for exile. What with the ridges that loom overhead, the beasts that put to the test your trust in the location, the isolated spot that lies down below, even if it is a mouse hole with the august appellations of thinkery, monastery, and school, the thickets of wild flora and the wreath of rugged mountains that puts shackles on you, not a crown, the mediocre climate and the longed-for sun, which you can make out only as if through smoke. O oh, Pontic and sunless Sumerians, sentenced not only to a six-month-long night, which, in fact, people say is the case, but also to not having even one unshaded part of being alive, the whole of life being one long night and truly the shadow of death, to use a phrase from scripture. Shall I praise the road both narrow and treacherous? Whether it leads to the kingdom or to hell, I don't know. For your sake, may it lead to the kingdom. As to the region in between, what do you want? Should I falsely call it an Eden, and the fount that was divided into the four sources from which the whole world takes drink? Or a dry and waterless desert that some Moses will make habitable once he uses his staff to make a stone gush forth? For whatever escaped the rocks became dried up gullies, and whatever escaped the gullies became thorn brushes, and what loomed over the thorn brushes became a cliff. The road on top is also steep and dangerous on either side. It forces the mind of travelers and trains them for safety. The river rages down below. To you, O grandiloquent one and maker of new names, it must seem like the tranquil strimon of Amphipolis. But it is no richer in fish than in stones, and it feeds into no lake but rushes down into the deep. For it is great and fearful, and it drowns out the psalmodies of those who stand over it. Compared to this, the cataracts and the catadupes are nothing. That's how loudly it inveighs against you day and night. Rugged and impassable, muddy and undrinkable. Its only beneficial aspect is that it doesn't sweep away your abode when the torrents and storms drive you crazy. That's what I think about those islands of the blessed, if you are in fact blessed. Go ahead, admire the crescent-shaped bends that choke off rather than fortify access to your foothills, the ridges that hang overhead, making for you a life like Tantalus's, and the drafts of cold air, and the earth's vent holes that refresh you when you're worn out, and the songbirds that do indeed sing, but about hunger, and do indeed fly, but over the desert. You say that no one comes for a visit except to go hunting, but you should also add, except to gaze upon you, dead folk. Maybe these words are too long for an epistle and too short for a comedy, but if you'll put up with my game in due measure, you'll act rightly. If not, I'll add even more. Here ends the letter. And what a letter it is. In short, Gregory is basically saying to Basil, Look, man, it's great that you want to live in the sticks, but if you expect me to join you there, you've got another thing coming. I am not about that life. But even in this very private letter, look how flowery Gregory's language is. He's obviously being quite playful. 
He even says as much in his next letter. But even so, his writing is littered with literary tropes, allusions to biblical and classical literature, and witty turns of phrase. Gregory really enjoyed writing, and he enjoyed writing to someone who had shared his literary education and could pick up everything he was putting down. Even when he was making fun of Basil, Gregory recognized Basil's intellect and rejoiced in his kindred spirit. But neither man would stay obscure forever. Once Basil and Gregory were bishops, their correspondence reflected the public reality of their jobs and the situations in which they found themselves. Here's an exchange between the two on the subject of Basil's reluctance to describe the Holy Spirit as God. First, Gregory's letter to Basil, and I quote, To Basil, From the beginning and still now I have regarded you as my guide in life, my teacher of doctrines, and everything fine that someone might say. Even if someone else is a praiser of your qualities, he is so either wholly alongside or after me. So inferior am I to your reverence, and so purely I am yours. And it's no surprise. Where intimacy is greater, the experience is greater. And where experience is more abundant, the testimony is more complete. And if being alive offered me any further advantage, it would be your friendship and intimacy. That's how I feel about these things. I hope it continues to be so. What I write now I write unwillingly, but I write nonetheless. Don't be irritated with me, or it is I who will be irritated if I should not be trusted to say and write these words to you with goodwill. Many of those who rightly think that our interests are united have condemned us for not being more assertive about the faith. Some publicly charge us with impiety, others cowardice. Impiety from those who believe our views are unsound, cowardice from those who allege timidity. Why do I even need to mention the concerns of other people? Let me explain to you what recently happened. There was a symposium, and more than a few of our notable friends took part. Among them was also a man who belonged to those who wear the name and habit of piety. There was no drinking yet, but as usually happens at symposia, there was a discussion about us, who were proposed as the subject of discussion in the place of another topic. Since everyone admires your qualities and agrees that we practice philosophy equally and speaks of our friendship, Athens, and our cooperation and concord in all things, the so-called philosopher reckoned the affair a travesty. What's this, gentlemen, he said, yelling quite thunderously. What flyers and flatterers you are! If it seems right, let the men be praised for other things. I would have no objection, but I'm not conceding the main point. Basil is praised erroneously for his orthodoxy, and so too is Gregory. The former betrayed the faith in his discourses, and the latter was an accomplice to the betrayal by tolerating it. How can this be, I said, you fool, you knew Dathan and Abiran in your madness? Where do you get off coming to me as a dictator of doctrine? How are you making yourself a judge of important matters? Just now I have come, he said, from the commemoration of the martyr. This is how he was. And there I heard the great Basil speaking of the Father and Son as God excellently and perfectly as no one else could so easily. But he brushed off the spirit. And he compared you to rivers that run past rocks while scooping up sand. And looking at me, he said, For your part, admirable man, you already thus speak of the Spirit as God. And he recalled some phrase of mine that I employed to speak of God in a crowded synod before applying this famous scriptural passage to the Spirit, For how long will we hide the lamp under the bushel? 
But Basil makes faint gestures and merely sketches his account, but does not speak the truth with frankness, overwhelming his audience in a more political than pious way, and shrouding his duplicity with the force of his discourse. That's true, I said, only because I practice my philosophy outside of danger, lying and hiding, remaining unknown to the masses. Neither what I say nor what I speak is even approximately known. But Basil's discourse is more important because it is more conspicuous on account of who he is and his church. Everything that he says is public, and the fighting around him is fierce in that heretics strive to lay hold of his literal meaning and even Basil himself so that what is cast out of the church is more or less the sole remaining spark of truth and life-giving power, while everything within his jurisdiction is overtaken and vice takes root in the city, and from the church, as if a base of operations, overruns the entire community. The end of my story is that I thus sent them away. But you, my divine and sacred captain, must teach me just how far I should advance in speaking of the Spirit as God, what phrases I should employ, and the extent to which I should use discretion, so that I can use them against our opponents. For me, as the one who knows you and your interests better than everyone else, and who has both given and received assurance on these questions often, to lack instruction on this now would be the silliest and sorriest thing of all. Here ends the letter. Now, this is a very famous and very often misinterpreted letter. It's misinterpreted because people have often failed to understand the public nature of it. At the beginning, you remember Gregory told Basil how he's just the best. He's taught Gregory everything he knows, how Gregory can hope to do no more than just expound the wisdom that Basil has given him and praise him with everybody else. Now, if you thought this was just a letter between friends, and you didn't know that Gregory was way more emphatic about the divinity of the Holy Spirit than Basil, you would probably read that beginning as just a statement of fact. And generations of scholars have done exactly that. They have treated Basil as the source of all Trinitarian doctrine among the Cappadocians, and they've treated Gregory as just a mere popularizer of Basil's teachings. The mouth to Basil's brain. But you, dear listener, already know better than that. You know that Gregory would really like Basil to say more than he is saying about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. You also know that Basil is unwilling to do that at this point in time because he is trying to build alliances with homoousians, and they're going to balk if Basil starts talking about the Holy Spirit as God. And you know that this letter is going to be read and talked about by everybody between Nazianzus and Caesarea. So what does Gregory do? He says, hey, Basil, old buddy, old pal, I know you really well. I know you better than anyone, and I know you're perfectly orthodox, and believe the Holy Spirit is God. But these other guys are calling you a heretic. I mean, can you believe that? I mean, I just, I didn't know what to say, man. So, like, if you could just tell me what to say about the Holy Spirit, if you could just tell me to say what you would say, that would really help me out. Do you see what he's doing? He's putting Basil in a bind. Those who read this letter are very likely to assume that Basil does share Gregory's position, and now Gregory has baited Basil to respond to these slanderers, even though Basil thinks silence is the wisest course. But of course, Basil was not born yesterday. He sees through this trap, and he is not happy that Gregory would do this to him. He replies, 
Basil to Gregory. I received the letter of your reverence through our most reverend brother Hellenius, who in person related in plain language what you had intimated to us. How we were affected in hearing this you certainly can be in no doubt. However, since we have decided to put our love for you above any grievance, we have received even these communications in a becoming manner, and we pray the holy God that for the days or hours that are left to us we may be preserved in the same disposition toward you as in the past, during which we have been conscious of falling short in nothing, be it small or great. But if the person we have in mind, aspiring to peer into the life of the Christians, and also thinking that his being associated with us may bring him a certain degree of prestige, has recently proceeded to trump up things which he has not heard, and to relate things of which he has gained no knowledge, there is nothing surprising in that. But the surprising, and indeed incredible thing, is this, that he finds as hearers of these slanders the truest to me of the brethren among you, and not merely as hearers, but even, it seems, as disciples. Even though on general grounds it was incredible that such a man as he should be the teacher, and I the object of his disparagement, yet the topsy-turvy condition of the times has taught us to be vexed at nothing. For charges more ignominious than these have for a long time become familiar to us in punishment for our sins. As for me, therefore, if I have never yet given this fellow's brethren a proof of my opinions regarding God, I certainly have no answer to give now. For how will a brief letter persuade those whom a long life has not convinced? But if that life is in itself sufficient, let that which emanates from the slanderers be considered mere nonsense. Yet we must remember that if we suffer unbridled mouths and uneducated minds to prattle about whatever they please, and if we hold our ears ready to receive, not only shall we receive a false idea of the affairs of others, but they will do the same as to ours. Now the cause of the present state of affairs is one which I have long urged you not to permit to arise, but which I now, through the very weariness of repetition, pass over in silence. The fact that we do not meet one another. For if we, living up to our old agreements, and to the responsibility which we now owe to the churches, were in the habit of spending the greater part of the year together, we should not have given access to these slanderers. But do you, if you approve, disregard these men, and of your own accord be pleased to cooperate with us in the struggle now at hand, and to meet in company with us the enemy who is arrayed against us, for if you are merely seen, you will stop his attack and will utterly disperse those who are organizing themselves to overthrow their country by making it known to them that you yourself, by the grace of God, are the leader of our forces and that you will close every wicked mouth of such as utter lawlessness against God. If this is done, the facts themselves will show who it is that follows you to the goal of honor and who it is that shifts hither and thither and in his cowardice betrays the word of truth. But if the interests of the church are once betrayed, little needs to be said by me with the idea of persuading by words those who estimate my worth, at what men may estimate it, who have not yet learned to measure their own selves. For in no great while, by the grace of God, the evidence of our deeds will refute their slanders, because we expect to suffer very soon some even greater misfortune for the sake of the doctrine of truth. Or if not that, then at least certainly to be banished from the churches and from our countries. But even if none of these things to which we confidently look forward comes to pass, the judgment of Christ is not far off. Therefore, if you ask for the conference, it is for the church's sake that I am ready to meet with you wherever you summon me. But if it is in order that I may refute these slanders, 
then at present I have no leisure to make any reply about them. Here ends the letter. You will notice that Basil's language is quite a bit more formal, and also more restrained, than Gregory's. Of course, there's the fact that Basil, as the bishop of a major city, is referring to himself with the royal we, but it goes deeper than that. There are fewer gratuitous biblical and classical allusions. The display of affection is more moderated. I mean, Basil does complain about how Gregory doesn't come to see him, but really it is more moderated than what Gregory was saying. And, of course, there's the fact that Basil's message is a negative one. If you want to call a council on this, buddy, go right ahead, but I have better things to do than answer every two-bit tavern dweller who calls me a heretic. There are several reasons for the difference in tone, I think. First, Basil's style in general is a bit more reserved than Gregory's, at least on my reading. Second, Basil is mad at Gregory for trying to manipulate him. He knows what Gregory's doing, and he doesn't like it one bit. Third, Basil has to be a bit cold to correct the public perception. After all, Gregory implied in his previous letter that Basil is definitely, totally on his side. I mean, man, Basil, you're about to pronounce the spirit homoousius with the father any day now. Just, just let me know what to do in the meantime. If Basil's diplomatic efforts to the homoousians and the spirit fighters are going to continue, he needs to squelch that rumor, and he needs to squelch it fast. A studied and insistent neutrality is the only way to quiet the crowds the same crowds that his homoousian allies are listening to. Fourth, Basil is not just mad because his friend put him in a bind, he's mad that his subordinate tried to put him in a bind. For Basil was Gregory's senior bishop. Gregory owed Basil absolute obedience and loyalty. For Gregory to attempt to manipulate Basil's public stance in the interest of his own cause felt not just like a slight on their friendship, but a challenge to Basil's authority. Gregory appears to lick his wounds after that letter, respecting Basil's authority, but continuing to encourage him to stand up and declare himself for the spirit. Gregory appears to have been hurt by the coldness in Basil's letter, and knowing their history, it's not hard to imagine that Gregory has often felt hurt by Basil's distance. It almost seems like Gregory has felt more tied to Basil than vice versa. Basil left Athens when Gregory begged him to stay. Gregory took an ordination he did not want largely because of pressure from Basil, and Basil refused to join Gregory in the fight for the spirit's divinity because of political concerns. Gregory saw Basil as his bosom brother. Basil appears to have seen Gregory as a useful ally first and a friend second. It's hard to imagine the kind of pain that can cause. It was a pain that would, alas, only increase with the years. The point came when Gregory had had more than enough of it. As Basil pushed him via letter to take charge of his new holding at Sassima, to drive out that rival bishop, to get on with it and advance Basil's aims, which were, of course, his own, at least in Basil's mind, Gregory replied with some of his most biting prose. And I quote, Rather, take him to battle yourself, if that's what pleases you for necessity often makes weaklings become warriors, or seek out those who will fight when he grabs your mules while watching the straits, just like Amalek of old who shut in Israel. But before everything, give me some peace. Why should I fight for pups and birds that belong to other people, as if in fact for souls and cannons? Why should I defraud the metropolis of the luminous inhabitants of Sassima, or lay bare and reveal the secret of your intention when it ought to be concealed? 
But as for you, man up and be powerful. Draw all glory to yourself like rivers do torrents, preferring neither friendship nor intimacy to virtue and piety. As a result, you'll come off not as the sort who worries about the consequences of his actions, but someone who belongs to the one spirit. As for me, I'll gain this alone from your friendship. Never to trust friends, and to treat nothing as preferable to God. Here ends the letter. This letter was not the end of their correspondence, but it sure reads like the end of any lingering warmth they may have had for each other. Gregory's bitter words are even more remarkable when we consider that they are public. And he knows as well, that's the whole bit about revealing Basil's secret intentions, namely, the intentions of Basil just trying to gain more power for himself. Gregory feels deeply wronged by Basil, and at this point, he doesn't seem to care who knows it. Even saints can have a falling out. Reading their letters, it's hard not to get the sense that Gregory was overall a more sensitive person than Basil, more prone to powerful expressions of feeling, and more prone to airing his wounds in public when he thought he was being treated unfairly. As you know, Basil and Gregory never fully patched things up before Basil's untimely death. However, these letters do not mark the end of their literary relationship. For Gregory preached a eulogy for Basil after his death, in which he lionized Basil as the great defender of the Orthodox and celebrated their friendship. Now, he didn't completely conceal their falling out in that speech, but he does seem to be a bit less verklempt about it all than he was at this letter. Their common work, in other words, has the last word. But it's certainly worth reading all the words that came before the last one. That turns witty, brilliant, cold, calculating, courageous, and even sometimes a little bit petty. They prove that on a long road trip, there are far worse forms of distraction than a pen pal. A lesson we could all do well to heed on this road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.